Welcome to the Forever Classic Podcast, the show seeking enlightenment through video games, films, and other geek culture. I'm Alex McCumbers, and we have a, a historical event today. We have our third guest, second or third guest. With me is Nick Calandra, the Hi. site owner of Ganumentary. How's it going, everybody? And Nick is going to be here with us today. We're going to do a shorter episode on game history efforts. Uh, we're going to talk about documentaries, of course, because that's what he's currently working on. And if you missed our episode last time, it was with uh, Strizer86, our good buddy Mark. He's one of the best uh, Castlevania speedrunners I've seen in a long time. And it was a really fun episode, and it was a really long episode. So if you like Castlevania, definitely check out our previous episode. But Nick, uh, gaming history is probably one of my most pursued things here recently. And I absolutely love digging into it. And I did want to get you on and kind of talk about why gaming history is so important, especially uh, these days with the modern environment we have. Yeah, you know, honestly, gaming history, um, I guess a lot of what we did when I was working on LESP was just not so sure it was history focused. To me, it's more about like getting the inside stories from the developers themselves. One of the biggest, when you're, when you're, when you're writing like a feature article or whatever, and you, what we used to do was instead of actually just sending over questions like in Q&A, we'd always have a Skype call with a developer and transcribe it and really get a conversational tone out of it that let them really tell their story instead of us kind of just writing about them it was really more them telling us the story but as far as like preserving gaming history goes i don't know like there's, there's so much secrecy in the industry when you can kind of get the developers to break out of their shells a little bit and share their secrets and all that it's interesting to go back and look at you know like we just released that bioshock thing and you know you, you kind of play a play a game like that and you don't really i don't think any anybody i don't think really anybody really appreciates just how much thought goes into how something like that is designed and so you know going back and looking at it 10 years later and kind of just like wow and and look how far games have come now it's just kind of you know you kind of see everything builds on everything Mm -hmm. i know um you mentioned secrecy in the industry it's like there is such a monetary value put on ideas that people started to hoard those things even though video games is one of those things where like you can build a genre or a type of game and it can very easily be mimicked and expanded upon or brought into something completely new. So it, it always was kind of weird to me that more of that history wasn't readily available. And it's only here recently that I'm starting to see like books being written and all these stories coming out. Uh, one of my favorite companies to read about is id Software. And I didn't really grow up playing Doom or, or Wolfenstein or any of those games, but I'm like fascinated with their history because there's just so much of it out there. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, when you go back in the day, like there wasn't a new, big new release every week. So, you know, every developer kind of had to rely on like what we're doing, you know, separate from what everybody else is doing. And like, they don't want to share those secrets. Like if, if another game could get like the same fluid movement and like shooting mechanics that Call of Duty had, you know, I guess you could say Medal of Honor, you know, was first in that regard, but Call mm -hmm. of Duty perfected it. They have a lot more competition in the shooter market at that time compared to like now where you have so many indie studios and all that can that can easily match that quality or better it. One of my favorite examples of that is um, whenever Final Fantasy 15 was in development and it was all these trailers and stuff came out, there was a guy like who single-handedly made a demo that was almost as good, if not better, than what they were doing, and he did it in like a year or two. I don't remember oh, the name right. of the project, but it's Oh, yeah, awesome. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, just incredible, incredibly fast. And I, and I think that goes with um, the availability of game development software and just how easy it is to develop for these 
uh, newer consoles than it was for, say, the Super Nintendo or the even the original Xbox. We had a podcast last week with the developer of uh, Epitus, and unfortunately, the, the audio on his side got messed up, so we can't air it. But essentially, kind of asked him, I was like, you know, with Unreal Engine and the blueprint system that they have now, could somebody like me who has no coding experience or whatever jump in there and make a game? He's like, oh yeah, you definitely could. He's a uh, you know, an artist at heart and had no really coding experience before he jumped into developing his game on Unreal Engine. So, and it, and it always shocks me whenever somebody says, "Oh, I made a game. Okay, cool. Well, what programming language did you write it in?" They're like, "What's programming?" Because <laughs> it's totally possible. Yeah, it's it's possible. It it definitely makes it easier to have a background in programming and coding. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you put the time into it and all the documentation that Unreal Engine has now. Put the time into it, you can do it. And I think another reason why we're starting to see like this upswing of gaming history is the fact that finally video games are being accepted as an artistic medium. And it's taken a very long time, but it's almost there to where even your 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 everyday Joe or Jane are like, yeah, video games can be really cool. <laughs> so it's starting to be more accepted as, as uh, the same level as books and films. And when we finally get there, we're going to see some really cool stuff. I think another part of that is just the uh, the games media industry is changing a little bit, finally. I mean, back when I started only single player in 2012, that was kind of the time of like really heavy clickbait, every, all these new sites popping up. Uh, and then I think within the last two years, most of them have pretty much died off, the same ones that kind of, that I grew up with a little bit. Maybe not died off, but like, you know, you used to hear all the time about like DSO gaming, gaming bowls. Dual shockers and all that, and they've kind of gone to the wayside, and now there's new sites that are popping up. And then, of course, there's content like what Daniel Dwyer is producing, what we're producing. There's a new YouTube channel called It's Just Gamers. They've got like a flipped over A for a V, and they're doing some really good content as well. I think Daniel Dwyer kind of started the, the movement towards this more like he showed people that this content could be profitable, and so that's why I think more people are edging towards now to, towards the history of gaming because like all the developers and the PR companies pretty much handle their own news now like mm-hmm. you know they pretty much cut out the middleman so I mean all you're seeing on you know IGN or GameSpot really anymore is kind of like the way that the regular media industry has gone is more just commentary about everything yeah which uh, makes it more interesting because I know I just recently got a job in radio and it's very much here's what's happening here are the facts it's it's almost a Twitter approach to uh, my writing style, but whenever I sit down to do something for our website, Marooners Rock, uh, it's more of a an opinion-based piece. It's more pulling things from other areas. If I get a news piece, I'll like mention how this is more relevant to the the games industry at large or that particular company. So it's a little bit more involved, yeah. and I think people appreciate that. But uh, <laughs> I mean, even, even for sites like Glexel or Waypoint, I don't really see Waypoint already. Waypoint's already not really posting as many features as they were when they started. Yeah. All I've seen, all I've seen from their Twitter account is player knows battlegrounds every day, <laughs> which is very, very popular right now. Oh yeah. Personally, I haven't played it. If I had a computer that could run it, I would be all over that. But, um, 
I'm more of the guy that gets really excited about um, smaller like RPGs or something. Yeah, kind of the problem of being a games journalist, you get excited about so many games and then you just can't really play any of them. Yeah. <laughs> the next one comes out, you're like, well, I gotta review that, but I don't have time to review that because here's another game I gotta try and review, so here we go. Yep, I, tr I try to do one or two a week. Now, and for those of you, for those who are listening who are kind of unaware of who you are, uh, Game Inventory is this really cool documentary series that's popped up what, maybe a month or two ago you guys uploaded your first doc? Uh, yeah, it was back in May. We, we launched the site itself back in January, and all we really do is focus on feature content, which so far hasn't gotten a whole lot of traction, but I'm happy with the work we produce regardless. I was actually unaware that you guys had like a full website until I went Googling for some basic facts and stuff for the purposes of the podcast, and you guys have a pretty interesting site with just a pretty widespread uh, array of content from like podcasts to the feature posts. You guys have done a, a couple of reviews too, haven't you? Yep, we do. We do written reviews. Uh, we just started duo reviews, which is a new kind of format we're trying out. Essentially, with those, we have two of our reviewers play the exact same game at the exact same time, and then they go through and pretty much just review it together within the video. And at the end of the video, they decide on a on a score together. Usually, sometimes they can't agree on opinion, and we'll have two opinions. But uh, <laughs> usually, they'll come together and be like, "Yeah, we can either recommend this undecided or avoid." And that's kind of interesting. I'm always fascinated by how people approach reviews because the cut and dry, hey, this is a whatever out of 10, doesn't necessarily work anymore. Games oh, are more complex than that. The developers that we've reached out to and done these duo reviews really like it just because, I mean, how many times have you gone to a website and somebody's mad about one person's opinion? So it's like, well, why not give them two? Then they can't be mad. Yeah. <laughs> or at least they're less likely to be mad. Yeah. I've only gotten backlash from like one review, I think. And that's because I gave the Call of Duty 4 remake an 8. And all these people are like, oh, it's perfect. I'm like, it's less than the original, guys. <laughs> It's prettier, sure, but whatever. But what I'm interested in is the, the capturing of, of video game history, the archival essence of it, because I'm a really big fan of emulators and ROM hacking and going back and making sure that we have like all these different versions of a particular game and making them readily available for people. And there's been kind of an upswing in that recently with um, some national video game museums and archival efforts. We have archive.org releasing entire libraries at a time of like old DOS games and there, it seems like we're finally getting a point where we're shying away from that sort of thing being, ooh, it's illegal, we're taking money from people when it really isn't. It's just a, an effort to preserve history and enjoy these things for years and years after they come out. Well, I mean, the gaming industry isn't that old yet, so it yeah. is, you know, what are we, I don't know, 40, 50 years maybe now. Mm -hmm. Like at the very start, uh, not even that, it's like 1980s. I don't even know. <laughs> It'll enough. be interesting um, how we'll view the gaming world as a medium when it's been a hundred years of games. Because I think it took about a hundred or was it a hundred years before films really started to like be accepted? Have films been around for a hundred years yet? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the, I Close think to the, it. the first Academy Awards were back in the 19. 1940s. So we're, we're getting uh, to fact check on that. And then you have things like books, which are widely accepted as super important to the human image and, and preserving history. So I think maybe in another 30, 40 years, we'll finally get to the point where like we'll have whole libraries dedicated to video games and they'll be everywhere. Because we yeah. already have some libraries kind of accepting that. Probably, maybe this is a false statement, but I don't think like 
games back maybe even five years ago really had all that much to say about like political commentary. Oh no, I guess that's not right because maybe let's let's say like within the last 15 years probably games have started becoming more of a voice or artistic voice and having like political commentary or commentary on life. Hellblade for one is like I don't know if you've played that yet, but that's it's on my list it, yeah. and I'm learning so much about it. That uh that that game is like if somebody were to pervert preserve history about games like that's a game that needs to be preserved just for the way it portrays like mental health issues and everything mm-hmm. uh, specific you know games like that was something to say not not that that means other games are any less important but there are other games that definitely deserve that spot in history for doing something out of the ordinary or saying something important and presenting it in a way that people can understand it better going through and playing hellblade and seeing how the you know ptsd or whatever you want to call it in the game seeing how that affects her like on the screen and how the sounds and everything you're going to get more that way than ever reading a book about it really and that's where i think the advantage of video games really is made apparent because like it's not just interactivity, it's also sound design, it's it's visual design, it's writing. Like, there's a lot that goes into games that I think no other medium has been able to capture. Yep, I completely agree. There's one game that I saw at PAX called Riot that kind of fits this whole commentary on history, on political issues. And the game was, you could either play as the police force or the actual rioters. And it was kind of a strategy game with a lot of push and pull elements to it. It it was a game that stuck out to me because it's based on actual riots. Like you can go to the London riots or what other famous riots that have been. And they like, they add things as new riots are happening. So it's a really interesting, like grounded game, even though it's represented in a very basic style. It it was really, I gravitated towards it just because of the the background that it came from. I'm assuming you follow uh, videogamehistory.org? Yeah, yeah, I've been keeping a pretty close tab on them because they're recent. They just came out here recently. Yeah, I'd love to go check out that archive. <laughs> we were in, when we were in Boston filming our Perception documentary, we went to a uh, non-chain game store there, and they had all the all the PS2 games, all the Xbox games, like all the games mm-hmm. from the old. And I'm like just sifting through the shelves, like wow, remember like so many of these games I've played. Yeah, retro gaming has definitely been something that's kind of all-encompassing for me. I don't really dabble much in Atari, but like I, I've been collecting for I don't know three or four years now, and I don't have a big I don't have a big collection. I have a big hardware collection. It's clear up to the PS4, and I'm bound and determined to have at least one of each console. I'm <laughs> close. <laughs> I'm really close. Still yeah, missing my... things like the Turbo Graphics, which I didn't even know the Turbo Graphics existed until like four years ago. Yeah, that might be something I do when I'm out of college, but lugging all that stuff around right now isn't uh, isn't so ideal. Yeah, so you're you're still in college. How old are you? I'm 22. This is my uh, my last semester, so. And, and you're studying film, yeah. Uh, multimedia journalism. So. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah. I just gotta give you some props. Um, whenever I sit down and watch your documentaries, I imagine it's done by like a full team of professionals. So you've already got a really good edge on some of the other competitions and some of the people that are doing something similar. Yeah, it's just it's uh, really just me and uh, my friend Kyle. He just uh, he films it. I interview everybody, and then uh, sometimes we'll bring somebody else along from the team to handle all the behind the scenes footage for us. You know, you kind of go through these Kickstarters and like people are like looking for like $50,000 budgets for one film. I'm like, how? I mean, aside yeah. from being, aside from paying people, like I completely understand that's where most of your budget well, yeah. really goes. <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, how do you, how do you go out and do that? How do you make the time to go out and do that? How do you afford it? It's like, I mean, 
just rent the camera and go do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you There's really want to make, yeah, if you want to make something happen, like you don't need a lot of money to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, Dan, like Daniel Dwyer, part of his thing was wanting to inspire people like us to, you know, go out and make this content because that's the content you want to see and make. Uh, and I mean, I hope what we're doing too inspires more people to go out and do it because, you know, there's always going to be competition, but like, to me, it's more like, I'd rather just see more of this content than worry about yeah. how much ad revenue we're getting or, you know, how many, that's been a big yeah. part of this, this Kickstarter is like the media has pretty much ignored us, won't talk to us. And I've had some people in the film, like, you know, be like, you know just ignore the games press because, uh, they seem to think that propping up other people's work doesn't benefit them at all. Yeah, but it's like, how many people do you really think, like, look at just one source? How many t- how many sources mm-hmm. are you going to sit there and just watch IGN all day, or are you going to go look at every other source, too? Uh, that's, I don't know, like, competition probably wasn't the best word, because I'm the type of person that takes in literally anything that I can get a hold of. So I'll go watch Escapist, I'll go occasionally watch IGN, I'll bring in Kotaku stuff, because I'm friends with a couple of the writers over there, and... I'm just constantly bringing in game commentary, I guess, and critiques, and I'm a really big fan of long-form critique here recently. But so so why did you choose uh, the documentary film as opposed to like maybe a book or, uh, or I guess you guys are doing the podcast thing as well. So why choose film? Honestly, it's just been something I've really wanted to do. Uh, when we were on OASP, the main thing that I wanted so badly on that site to succeed was just like our big feature stories. The documentaries kind of spawned off a, we did I think three of these on OSP and they were called spotlight features. Mm-hmm. And we essentially pretty much did what you would do in a documentary. We went back and talked to Warhorse Studios and didn't focus on the game really. We just did a whole interview, close to a 6,000 word interview on just the history behind the game. And so that kind of was like, oh, that'd be kind of cool if, you know, one day we can go show the history behind the game instead of just talk about it. Like, I want to go to those castles and get footage there and have the developers talk to us while we're sitting right right there in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and the, uh, the Runic doc for us was, you know, a proof of concept to say like, because I mean, I, I've never made a documentary before. Uh, my film guy has, but not on that scale. And so let's go out and try this, see how it works. And Runic was nice enough to give us a chance to do it. Uh, I was just gonna say, like even before that, I, I you know I'd never seen my film guy edit a full documentary either. So when he finally sent me the you know the final thing, I was like, I wasn't had no idea what to expect. <laughs> yeah, and it turned out really well because I enjoyed, and I'm not even like I wouldn't even consider myself a big Runic Games fan. I knew they had made Fate, and I and I knew that um, they had made that other Diablo style clone, Torchlight. And we had talked to them for Hob because it was a game that uh, a lot of our writers were endeared with at PAX East. I didn't really know just how deep that rabbit hole went with their story. And because of your guys' documentary, I'm like, wow, I should probably play Torchlight. Like, (laughs) these guys seem like they know what they're talking about. And those listening, if you like game documentaries and things like The Gaming Historian and... uh, all, all these other really high quality documentaries you do have to go check out gamingumentary there'll be a link in the show notes it'll also be in the description for all of the the episode tags so do check it out and if you like what you see give them some money via kickstarter because i don't want this project to die <laughs> yeah we, we won't die if the kickstarter is not funded but uh, yeah, i can't i can't speak to what we're what we're looking at right now but we've got we've got a couple backup plans in the works Personally, I'm really looking forward to your guys' Kingdom Come uh, episode. Yeah, I, w- I would love to do that one. I'd, ha- I'd have to say if the Kickstarter isn't funded, we probably won't be able to make that one. Uh, 
literally almost six thousand dollars of our budget from the Kickstarters just for that documentary, just for travel. Oh, wow. Now, where our, where would you have to travel for that one? We'd have to go to Prague. Oh, cool. So two two plane tickets there is last time I checked was about five thousand dollars. So wow, that's before we even pay for hotel costs or whatever else we need down there. Eating, drinking, partaking. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Drinking in the culture. Yeah. That, that, in, in, in hindsight, it might have fared better if we hadn't included that one just yet. I guess go big or go home. And what I like about your guys' projects is that you're you're focusing on these smaller companies that still have some history to them. And that's what makes it interesting for me because they're the stories that have either never been told or have been touched upon very briefly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, well, Daniel, I really like Daniel Dwyer's stories. Um, it's hard to watch some of his docs. Like, I don't know if you've seen his Final Fantasy one. I'm assuming you have. That's the but, guy that did the uh, the really good Doom one, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. His, uh, I haven't seen the Final Fantasy one yet. Uh, they're they're very long and they're very they're they're very good. They're just a little bit too technical for my taste, and like it's hard for me to want to sit through you know almost two hours of content on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're we're trying to focus ours more on less on the development of the actual game and more the story behind the game came to be. And I think you're going to see that a lot more with our perception documentary than our runic one, uh, just because you know we we really fo- what we didn't do with the runic one was focus on the studio as people as much as we would liked Mm -hmm. Uh, and if we had you know the documentary would have been 40 45 minutes long instead of 27 but with this one we we definitely it's going to have like a very family oriented feel to it and it's it's really different i think from anything that you would probably seen documentary wise i think it's going to surprise people now how did the well i guess you kind of have answered how it kind of all came about i mean you're studying film uh you obviously have a deep passion for games but what was the driving, like, okay, this is, what was that particular moment where you guys decided, yes, we're going to do a documentary and we're going to jump into Kickstarter? Well, back in, from 2012 to 2016, I ran OISP, and uh, about 2014, we were, we were just kind of where we hit the peak of the site, we were hitting about 250,000 visitors a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, it just kind of quickly died off very quickly. Uh, part of that was because I was so busy with school, and I was a, uh, I had a big role in my fraternity at the time. But at the other, at the, on the other hand, like I started getting very, very bored <laughs> with writing news and trying to compete with everybody on sites. Like I don't know if you've ever used N4G. But, yeah, uh, once or twice. <laughs> yeah, like I hated posting news there because there would be a certain person from another site who would always report my shit and fail it and yeah it's just the uh, the n4g admins there are very antagonistic towards content creators which i don't understand but that's a topic for another time mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh yeah by the end of like 2016 i had started contemplating if i wanted to sell only sp or what i wanted to do with it because i just i didn't want to really manage a business anymore i just wanted to create content Right. Uh, so, kind of started talking with my team, started drawing some ideas for like, you know, are we, do we want to do a new site? Do we just want to focus on feature content? What do we want to do? And then Daniel Dwyer launched NoClip. He's raising $22,000 from this, and I know we can do that too. Not the money-wise, but we can create that kind of content if we try it. So, yeah, I mean, probably 15, 20 studios at the start got some bites and said they were interested, but didn't know because, you know, we had nothing posted yet. And, uh, well, yeah. Runic gave us the green light in October of last year, and we were out there in March. And I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, and I, we're, we're happy with it. Definitely 
you know, this this I'm a lot more excited about this documentary because this is what we really wanted to do, uh, tone wise. Mm-hmm. And I think we I think we nailed it this time. So, of course, yeah. Kyle's Kyle's got to make sure he edits it correctly. So Kyle, if you're listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> come on, Kyle. Now, if you were to do something other than video games, what would you do? As far as work? As far as like a documentary or oh, a documentary. Um, you know, I don't really know. I really don't have an interest in journalism outside of the games industry. Mm-hmm. I've watched enough CNN and Fox and ABC just be really jaded towards that industry. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And, I, and I I we've tried to tune out. Yeah, and we've even had journalists from like local news stations come in and talk to us in our class classes and had one guy that came in and it's just super pompous and like, was like yeah you know you shouldn't post anything on social media like uh, any, anything fun on social media and it's like so you just what, what do you do on social media and they're like well, i share my stories and they get a ton of views and he's got like 2,000 followers on twitter it's like wow you're impressive <laughs> uh, but he just won a couple of awards for stuff and I, I don't know i just i get a lot of times with journalists big name journalists I guess or somebody that thinks they're a big name journalist they just become very uh, self-centered and think they know better than everybody else on how to produce a story and I mean I've been doing all this since I was in 8th uh, grade so and I taught myself how to write I, I had help from uh, some of the first guys that came on with me were at, were at my, my first site called Titan Reviews and one of them was like an English English professor professor in Australia, and so he he kind of helped me tell my craft in writing. Not that I'm the best writer or anything. I just like as far as journalism goes, like I just if it's not involved in the games industry, I really have no interest. Yeah, with um with journalism as a whole, it's one of those things that no matter what style or how good you think you get, if there's gonna be somebody that doesn't necessarily gravitate towards that, because right. at the end of the day, how the story is told can vary across all mediums and you'll have different people enjoying different styles. Which is why I think we need more journalists overall in everything, especially games me- uh, media, because uh, we need all those varying opinions. It yeah. just makes the, not, the product better in the end. I'm not so sure I would call them journalists, just for the sake of I mean, they are, but the games industry, like, there's not really that much to investigate within the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of, you know, there's a few hot topics like, you know, key scammers and uh, some of the corruption and the higher-ups and all that. But, I mean, like, it's not like, you know, they're outsourcing. I guess they are outsourcing work now to third-world countries. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just not, you know, it's not such a uh, dramatized industry. Of course, yeah. you know, you get, sometimes you get things like the recent Nick Robbins thing and all that that need to be investigated, but on the other hand, like, most most of the times they handle it internally in the games mm-hmm. industry. Now, if there's one story that you want to tell more than anything, what would that story be? Um, probably particularly either a game company or, or a set of games. Um, one documentary that I really want to do in the next year or so is on Rainbow Six Siege. Disclosure, it's like my favorite game. <laughs> my favorite multiplayer game of all time now I've, I've put so many hours and I just can't get enough of it uh, that was my least favorite multiplayer game of the past like five years <laughs> I get why people like it I, I, I get why people like it and I, I think the, the five versus whatever like that's a brilliant mechanic just in itself <laughs> uh, Rainbow Six every you know every multi every game developer is like yeah our, every multiplayer match in our game is different that that's not true for any game to me except for Siege. Yeah. It's uh and their their DLC system for it works perfectly. They support it. They're great with the community. But uh yeah, like the 
the way it came about, you know, after it was uh, the Patriots cancellation, uh, and then pretty much the, the game was kind of dead on arrival due to the bad reviews and all that. And mm-hmm. Nobody expected this thing to have. I mean, they have that what they say twenty million my unique monthly players now. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and that was for a game that like nobody thought was going to do that. Uh, so that'd be a really cool story to tell. The other story I'd like to tell is how the uh, the first Metro game came about. Because that also got really bad reviews. Uh, I remember reading IGN's review of 2033, and you know I, I never really paid much attention to reviews myself. Like I'd, I'd read them, but they wouldn't dictate if I'd buy a game or not. I thought if it was cool, I'll go check it out. So ended up doing that for 2033. Ended up becoming one of my favorite games. And then uh, when we started up only SP, THQ were one of the first companies to work with us. We did a big kind of, I guess, promo for Last Light. We played a full playthrough of 2033, gave away Metro West like t-shirts, gas masks. Good time. Very cool. I know I've played uh, the beginning of 2033 on PS4, like the most recent remake, and I, I like the, the setting and everything about it, but it just had way too many frequent loading screens for me. Ah, yes, I, you gotta push past that game. That's one of the best best atmospheric first-person shooters you can play. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking real forward to the newest one, and maybe even the second one kind of fixes that. I'm not sure, but it, it's it's super an interesting story because it's based off an old Russian book, wasn't it? Uh, it's not not so so much an old Russian book, but it's a it's a series that it, a lot a lot of uh, games in the East are based off really popular books. The Metro series was very popular out there. Same mm. with yeah, same with the Witcher series. Yeah, that does make sense, and that's one of the most successful single-player games probably in the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. It would be as successful as Skyrim, and that's crazy. Deserves it. Yeah. I I haven't dabbled much in The Witcher. I've played the beginning to just about all of them, and I've read two or three of the books, but I haven't actually sat down to play The Witcher 3 because I know as soon as I do, I'm gone. (laughs) (laughs) And you won't see me for three or four weeks. But the documentary I'm super excited about doing right now, though, is uh, the Dark Siders. Is that the next one on the on the chopping block? Uh, if we're funded, the kicks if the Kickstarter is funded, we'll be out in San Francisco next month filming the Outpost Games one. Uh, they're doing SOS, and that game is a uh, I don't know if you I don't know if you've heard of it yet. No, no, I haven't. Uh, it's it's like a multiplayer battle royale game, but they're developing this uh, system called the Hero System around it. And essentially, they want to make it like they kind of equate it to like a reality TV show. So you'll follow a group of players as they play the game, and they gain reputations. Like you know, somebody a murderer, somebody team up with somebody, somebody backstab people. Yeah. This whole system will follow them as they progress through you know the different matches and all that. Hmm. Um, so That's it's, interesting. Yeah, they they pretty much want to make every player like an entertainer, which is actually really interesting. <clears throat> um, they're kind of keying off the fact that thousands of people could be watching you yeah as... well I mean they're uh, what they're doing should if it does well should advance the way you look at how uh, you know like how you interact with streams mm-hmm. essentially like kind of following a specific person to see how they fare which I've always considered that pretty cool how some of these games are incorporating the live stream into the actual mechanics of the game Yep. Yeah, they haven't. They didn't tell me uh, all yet what they're planning on incorporating into like player interaction with the live streams. But 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hero system, the way they explain it to me, and they can explain it way better than I can, uh, is definitely an interesting concept. Uh, but after that, uh, I gotta remember now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'd be in Prague doing Kingdom Come Deliverance in October, and November be in Austin, Texas, doing all three docks, Darksiders, Gunfires, and Battle Chasers. Oh, so you guys are gonna do the three for three. Yeah, all they're all right in Austin. So we we would bust in Texas for a while there since uh yeah, we do gunfire, airship syndicate, battle chasers dock, and then the Dark Siders dock is a collaborative effort between those two studios. That sounds like a a really busy like three to four week period. <laughs> uh definitely won't be three to four weeks. They want them they want them filmed in two or three days apart, so Oh wow. Yeah, that's but it's it's doable. Uh oh, yeah. You know, you really just go in the studio while they're working, get our interviews, and get out. Go in with a plan. Yep. And then after that would be the Helm Systems dock, and they just released uh, the Soul Keeper VR on Early Access on Steam. And the reason we're doing their story is because they're like about as startup indie studio as you can get. And they're also, mm-hmm. based on the success of this VR project, will be, you know, hopefully for funded, will be there right in the middle of like when they're deciding what to do next. So you'll kind of get that indie feel of like, what scope can we build into our next game? It'll be literally at the, the deciding factor of where this studio will go, and that's an interesting point in history. Yep, it'll be a... You'll see a lot of stress in that one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people just kind of like sweating and type away at keyboards. Yeah, probably. But yeah, we've already got some studios interested in doing stuff with us next year too, but can't talk about those ones yet. <laughs> not not quite. No. Nope. Well, no, nothing set in stone yet, but uh, lots of uh, studios with recent releases that are very highly regarded. That's awesome. Now, Nick, if somebody were to look for you online, where would they find you at? Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at NickJCal. That's a C-A-L. Uh, or you can follow Gamey on Twitter. Probably see me retweet some of my own stuff there sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you also find us on GameInventory.com and actually read our feature content. We share that stuff around. I'm going to have to start jumping in and reading it because I, I try to take in as much as I can to make myself slightly better. Yeah, we don't we don't post news at all. It's literally all feature content. That's appealing to me, personally. Yeah. And of course, if you have <laughs> a, uh, if, you, if anybody has a suggestion or just a general comment, you can email us at theforeverclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about the, a study of moe and anime possibly with a, a good buddy of mine who is an expert on it and then we're going to jump into the the resurgence of tabletop gaming and even talk about some some good old D days back in the college years i've never played a tabletop game you, you need to at least sit down with like an experienced D group and just kind of enjoy <laughs> maybe when i have time <laughs> yeah maybe when you're not filming crazy awesome documentaries <laughs> yeah Hopefully, the, hopefully that's not any time in the near future. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure. Uh, for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening to the Forever Classic Podcast. As always, stay cool, and we will catch you on the next episode. Okay, everyone. That's it for our first ever short episode on the Forever Classic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one while I was away, and we will see you next time when we are back to our regularly scheduled broadcasts music this week was Ambient Loop by Essa.